Well, in our series, We Need to Talk, we've come to the question, why is sex so complicated? You know, uh, if you're a generation older than me, you remember your parents uh, or your generation talked about the talk that parents had with kids. You know, when a kid came of age, you had the talk with them to tell about sex. But I grew up in the era where sex education began. And I remember in, in, in my, my school district in Fort Worth, Texas, um, uh, I, actually, I, when I was in junior high, I was one of the first sex education courses there. And the parents were talking about it before, it before it happened. I still remember in the summer before the semester where we had sex education, I would remember hearing parents talk in hushed, worried tones at church and at school about sex education. It kind of worried me because I got thinking, maybe it's really a hard class. You know, maybe it's tough. And I was, I mean, they looked so worried, I was wondering if I was going to be able to pass <laughs> sex education. Now, I'd heard high school kids talk about how difficult classes like trig and, and physics were. So I thought maybe sex education was like that. And then when I got into it, I found out it was no problem at all. I mean, it really wasn't difficult. I mean, a little bit about plumbing. That's uh, <laughs> part of it. And, but then again, I mean, when, when, you look, when I looked at the biology of it and the physiology and the physicality of it, it wasn't difficult at all. And I think you and I understand that I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, in, there's stuff you can learn about the techniques, the physical techniques of sex that are, you know, there's certain thing that you, things that you learn in regard to that. But really, when you get right down to it, sex in that regard isn't physically complicated. When we talk about sex being complicated, what we're talking about is we're talking about the psychology of it, or we're talking about the human relationship part of sex. And therein it is complicated. So today we're going to tackle the subject, why is sex so complicated? But before we do, it could be a good question to ask. Is it okay to talk about sex in church? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's probably not my favorite subject to preach about because, for one thing, I'm going to be a little uncomfortable, a little awkward. And, and after having delivered this message five times, I've discovered that it's a little uncomfortable and awkward in the room at times. But it is an important subject for us to talk about, an important question to ask, is it okay to talk about sex in church? Your answer to that question is going to come down largely uh, with your background. If you grew up in a very traditional church, you could say, I just don't think we should talk about sex in church. And I remember when we were a traditional church, I'd have parents come to me and say, oh, my kids are going to be in the room, and I'm not sure it's okay to talk about sex. Well, first of all, we have kids' environments, but I think a lot of times our kids know a whole lot more about sex than we think they do. I mean, not a new spring church, but in a lot of traditional churches. You know, I think that's the case. <laughs> um, every time, I remember back in the day when I used to hear complaints from parents who said maybe we shouldn't talk about sex, I thought about a letter that I came across where a woman was sending her son to his first day of college. And she wrote a letter to the president of the college that read like this. Dear sir, I'm asking you to be sure that my son is protected from any exposure to bad manners or bad habits of any kind. I have made sure he has never had to know about these things. He has been tenderly sheltered, having lived at home his whole life, except for the four years he was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so I think about that letter sometimes. I mean, our, our kids know a whole lot more than we think they do. The problem is, I wonder if they know what they need to know about sex. Then the, the, other, the question could be asked in a church like New Spring because we're a church where many of us come from very secular backgrounds. It could be that we would have someone here today who would say, I just don't think you should talk about sex in church because I'm just not really sure God weighs in on that. You know, people are, are free to express themselves sexually in any way they want to. And I think that having God weigh in on it could, 
could make someone feel constricted. And so we could come from all kinds of backgrounds and ask the question, is it okay to talk about sex in church? But what you need to understand is that would be like asking, is it okay for Bill Gates to talk about Microsoft? Because you see, just as Bill Gates is the founder of Microsoft, God, well, more than that, God is the designer and the founder of sex. He made sex. And so the thing that perhaps the most salient point for us to consider today is not, is it okay to talk about sex in church? The salient point is, do we understand that anytime we talk about sex and leave God out of the discussion, we're going to wind up messed up? I don't know if this is the best illustration, but it's the best one I could come up with. You know, we have a lot of pilots here in Wichita, and we make a lot of the world's airplanes. But there are friends of mine who make their own airplanes. I'm really impressed with that. And a lot of them are good pilots, and they know how to build planes. But here's the thing. You know, you can build your own plane if you want to. You can buy a kit most of the time that's been designed, and then you can, you know, get all the parts and assemble the plane in your garage or your barn. I want you to imagine this for a moment, though. I want you to imagine somebody spends thousands of dollars to buy an airplane kit to assemble his own airplane. But the designer is concerned. The person who's actually designed the kit is concerned that the guy that's building the plane might not know how to build the plane. So he goes to his house and says, sir, I realize you just bought one of my kits to, to build your airplane. Here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to come over to your house every afternoon and help you build the plane. But the guy says, no, I don't really want your help. I, I want to do this myself. It's, it's just a gig that I've always wanted to build my own plane. So the designer says, I understand that. Okay, I get that. But here, here, here's a set of plans. And, and I've worked very hard, diagrammed everything. I'm going to show you how to build this airplane. Be sure you, you build the plane the way I've designed it. And that's important because here's the thing. People who build their own planes, those planes are five times more likely to crash than a plane that you would buy from Cessna or Beechcraft. And the pilots are seven times more likely to die. So, you know, it would be very important for the designer to say, please, build the plane the way I've designed it. The person says, you know what, I'm not really interested in looking at the instructions. I'm just going to do what I feel like. I mean, when I look at a part and I think it goes with another part, I'm going to put that together. But I'll tell you what I'll do. At the end, when I get the plane built, I'll ask you to come in and look at it and ask your opinion of what you think of my airplane. Now, tell me for a moment how that designer is going to react to that. He's going to say, look, if you're only going to bring me in at the end, I'm not interested in dialoguing with you. And guys, I think that's where we are when it comes to sex in the 21st century church. I'm not just talking about outside the church. I think pretty much, in, in large part, a lot of American Christians are just pretty much doing what they feel like doing in regard to sex. Picking up an idea here, picking up an idea about sex from culture, from entertainment. And then at the end, it's like, well, maybe we'll ask God what he thinks about our ideas of sex. Because today, you know, we're, we're dealing with things like living together before marriage or dealing with things like premarital sex. We're actually looking at redefining marriage. And it's almost as if we bring God at the end to see if we like his opinions about sex. And I just don't think God's interested in that. He's the designer. He wants to be brought in at the very beginning. Well, I'm going to do something today that I don't always do. I'm just going to like walk you through scriptures today because if we're going to uncomplicate sex... We need to go back to the designer, and we need to look at some key things. Now, obviously, I'm, never, I'm not, not going to be able to help you uncomplicate every aspect of human sexuality, but we're going to look at some really big areas of complication, and we're going to see how God shows us how to uncomplicate them. And at times, I know I'm going to sound old school. I'll, we'll just have that disclaimer right up front. But guys, remember this. I'm not trying to be hard-nosed about this. My job is not to be popular. My job is not to be politically correct. 
Five seconds after you die, you're not going to The View. You're not going to TMZ. Five seconds after you die, you're going to stand before a living God. And my job is to get you prepared for that moment, not to make you popular. My job is to get you ready to, and then on top of that, I want you to live a happy life before you get there, okay? So even if I sound old school at times, you got to realize I'm not coming up with this on my own. I'm not going by what I feel like. I'm showing you what God has to say. I love, I love finding something that's mentioned for the first time in the Bible. There's a science called hermeneutics, which is a science of interpretation. And one of, the, one of the premier hermeneutics is the law of first mention, which means anytime you find something mentioned for the first time in the Bible, the characteristics of that subject will remain pretty much the same throughout the Bible. So I want to take you to the first mention of sex. You don't have to look very far. If you've got your Bible with you, you can just like turn it to the very beginning because it's in Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning. If you don't have your Bible, you can use an electronic device with a Bible app. And if you don't have that, it's okay. This will be up on the screen. What I want to take you to is the moment where God presents Eve to Adam. Um, Let's just look at Genesis 2.22. He brought her to the man. Now, I don't know if you've ever been part of an unveiling before. And it could be that you're part of a company and you're unveiling a new product, a new process. You might have worked for Apple and you were there when Steve Jobs brought out, you know, the iPhone or the iPad. But one of the greatest unveilings of all time has to be in Genesis chapter 2 when God presented Eve to Adam. Up until this point, God has made the animal kingdom. He's made Adam, but Adam doesn't have a mate, and he's lonely. That's not a surprise to God. God just knows men. And he knew that once he made Eve, that Adam, if they were having a bad day, Adam would say to God, I'd have been so much happier if you had never made the woman. And so God wanted Adam to know what he would feel like without Eve, so he would never say that to him. And so, you know, he had all the animals. They all had mates. They brought the animals before Adam. And Adam said, I don't see anything I'm interested in. So God put him to sleep. And God took a bone from his side. God could have made her any way he wanted to. But he took a bone from Adam's side. I think signifying that a woman and a man are equal, that they're side by side. They would walk together through life that way. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But it is impossible to translate I know this for a fact. It is impossible to translate Adam's response to God into English. We have no English. We don't have, we don't have any English, English expression for this. Our translation says, at last. But I have friends, friends who are Hebrew scholars who tell me that the closest English word to Adam's response when he saw Eve for the first time was, wow. <laughs> That's true. I'm sure Adam said, Lord, I really believe you've saved your best work for the last. Then, verse 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Some of you have a translation that says united into one flesh. That is the first mention of sex. And by the way, as long as time exists, we have God's perfect plan for a marriage. Leaving, being joined, and becoming one. By the way, before a marriage can happen, a man and a woman have to leave their families. By the way, have you ever known anyone who had leaving issues? I've known people who are 40, 50 years old that they still, they had leaving issues. They still had strings attached to a parent or maybe to a first spouse or to an old relationship. Leaving. It's been too long since I had biology. What's, what's cell division called? Is it mitosis or my, meiosis? 
You remember the diagrams from the biology course when you have cell division? You know, at first you have the cell with its nucleus, and then you see the wall of the cell, you know, begin to form, begin to form the new cell, and, and it's like the sideways figure eight, and the nucleus is squeezed in the middle, and then there's that point where the wall shut off, and you've got two cells with two nuclei. That's what happens in, in marriage, is a man and a woman leave their father and mother, they become their own cell with their own nucleus. So leaving. Now, the next thing that happens in a marriage is that we become, in, in fact, some of you may have an old translation that says cleave, but it really means, the Hebrew means to become glued together. Let me talk to every married person here today or everybody who will be married someday. This is something that you're going to have to work at. You have to proactively work toward being glued together. Guys, I don't counsel anymore, but back in the days when I used to counsel, I counseled hundreds of people who were ready to get divorced, and I, don't, and I wish I had a dollar for every time one of them would say to me, we just drifted apart. Listen to me. Drift happens. You will drift apart. I mean, if you're not proactively trying to stay in each other's life to become glued together, you will drift apart. And, and the thing about it is, if I'm going to be glued to Mary Allison, she's going to be glued to me, I've got to become interested in what she's interested in. She's got to become interested in, in what I'm interested in, even though it may not interest her at all. And she's so good at this. She asked me yesterday morning about the NFL draft. That's a fact. She didn't care anything about football. But I'm watching, you know me, I'm a football fan. I'm watching rounds four through seven of the NFL draft like it's really ma- it really matters. And rounds came and asked me a question about what's it like to be a general manager in the NFL? Well, I know she didn't care about that. She's trying to be in my world. And by the way, I know about the pioneer woman. <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I mean, I know about the ranch and, you know, I, and everything. Mary Alice loves pioneer woman. So I sit there and watch it with her. Am I interested in it? But I, I'm interested in Mary Alice. And don't judge me because if you ask Mary Alice if she's really interested in the NFL draft, she would say no. So just want you to know. So that's what it means to be married. You leave, you cleave, or you or become glued together, and then you become one flesh, become one, and then, then sex takes place. Now, guys, listen. If you lose everything else that I say in the talk today, what I'm about to say next is worth how far some of you drive to be here. There's an order to sex. And at any point we compromise that order, we're in real trouble. Let me explain the order. The order goes like this. Value, security, oneness or intimacy, and then physical expression. All of us here, hopefully, or most of us here, will find the love of our lives. Think about this. If you've already found the love of your life or if you're searching, think about how it works. We start off looking. And where does it begin? It begins with value. We just value someone. I mean, we we come to value them. They they come to mean something to us. And they come to mean more and more. But but not everybody we value is is a candidate for a mate. I value lots of people who could never be my wife. But you know how it is when you fall in love, you just start like valuing them more and more and more. If, you ever, if you've ever been in love, you know what that's like. I mean, it's like at first it's sort of like your friends and then maybe we're dating a little bit and then you're just like, man, I wonder what he's thinking or I wonder what she's thinking or gosh, I just can't wait to tell her. And it's like, you have to talk every day and then you just start valuing them more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, something clicks and value moves to security. What do I mean by Security. 
When you find the love of your life, when I found Mary Alice, she went from being valued to suddenly being the one person in my life who mattered more than anything else. And she became secure in my heart that nobody else could ever take her place. Nobody would take her place in the present, and nobody could take her place in the future. She was secure with me forever. She had become so valuable that she was singularly valuable to the place of being totally secure with me. And out of security comes intimacy. Intimacy is we become one person. And with Mary Alice and me, we've been married 38 38 years and we started going around in high school together, so that's over 40 years. What's getting a little freaky is I don't know where my fabric stops and her fabric begins. In fact, what really scares me is she's beginning to be like me. I'm not sure I can deal with that. No, seriously. I mean, it, it, one person. And then what is sex? Sex basically is the physical expression of that relationship, that oneness that's built on security, that's built on value. The problem with today is that people are having sex, but it's not based on security. It's certainly not based on intimacy. And in a lot of cases, it isn't even based on value. Again, I know a talk like today can, can raise guilt feelings, and that's the Lord knows that's the last thing I want to do. I'm guessing most of us here today have got sexual stuff in our past that we're not proud of. By the way, aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Well, let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer anyway, but did you ever have sex and you don't, it didn't mean anything? How does that make you feel? Let me ask you another question. Did you ever have sex on credit? Do you have sex and you hope it comes to mean something later? I talk to a lot of fine women. I mean, they'll have sex with a guy, give a guy sex in the hopes that maybe he'll value her. You see, it's out of order. The problem is, there's sex, but it's a fraud. It's communicating something physically that, that's not there spiritually. God wants us to understand there's an order of sex. It begins with value. It goes all the way to security. Security goes to oneness. And then sex, of course, is the physical expression of the relationship that exists. I know what you and I see. I mean, we see, you know, we go, go see a movie. How many times do you see hot sex scene between a committed man and woman? I mean, a husband and wife. Oh, you know, it's, I mean, we, we know it. I mean, it's almost like that's not sexy. And yet, on the other hand, listen to what the Bible says about the kind of sex that we see presented in entertainment. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, the Bible says this from the message, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. Wow. Could that be on a tombstone for modern-day America? The kind, that kind of sex that can never be won. Well, let's talk about this for a moment, because as we begin to uncomplicate sex, what God wants us to understand is that sex is a lot bigger than we think it is. We live in an age that's almost like minimized sex. It's made it very unimportant. But God is saying sex is so important, you know, if it's a scale, if sex weighs a lot, we need, it needs to have a relationship that is equally weighty. So for the next few moments, I just want to read some scripture to you. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to answer the question about the context for sex. Whenever I read either 1 or 2 Corinthians, I love reading the books because Corinth was a whole lot like the United States. It was an area that thought they were very sophisticated. It was where a confluence of a lot of cultures came together. There was Greek intellectualism. There was Roman power. There was Eastern thought, 
and it was very wealthy. And so there's a church in Corinth, and they're messed up on a lot of stuff. Some of them believe in reincarnation, you know, I mean, and they're sure messed up on sex. So Paul is going to answer their questions. At some point, he must have given them the opportunity to ask him questions. And so let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Well, that's pretty straightforward. Somebody wrote Paul and said, is it a good thing to have sex? I love his answer. Verse 2, certainly. But only within a certain context. Well, let's just read what the Bible says. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and to provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Let me take that last line first, and we'll go back to the middle of the verse. You know, some of us could hear that today, and we could say, well, that was really prophetic of Paul to to use that expression, a world of sexual disorder. That's not particularly prophetic. Let me tell you why it's not. I've got friends who don't believe in God, and we, we talk, we dialogue a lot. But my friends a lot of times who don't believe in God, when we get on the area of sex, a lot of times they'll tell me, well, you know, you, you Bible believers are very backward because we're very evolved sexually. Very evolved. Oh, spare me. <laughs> we're not evolved sexually. Where we are sexually in the United States, the world's been here many times before. I mean, listen to what Ezekiel wrote 500 years before Jesus was born. He said, sex is now anarchy. Anyone is fair game. Well, that sounds like America today, doesn't it? In Hosea chapter 4, from the message, verse 18, the Bible says, when the beer runs out, it's sex, sex, and more sex, bold and sordid debauchery, how they love it. Verse 19, their sex worship leaves them finally impotent. In other words, they try to find a sexual thrill, and then after a while, that doesn't thrill anymore, and they have to find something deeper and darker, and that doesn't thrill anymore, and they get deeper into pornography and quirky sex, 50 shades of gray, and all that kind of stuff. And you know what, you know what the answer, you know what the end of it is? Impotence. After a while, sex means nothing. Now, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 7, too, because in his clarification, the Bible says, Paul says, marriage is strong enough, look at these verbs, to contain the sex drives and to provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of disorder. So, guys, it may sound old school, but God is just simply saying, sex is big. If you want it to mean something, there needs to be a relationship that equals it, and the only relationship is marriage. And can I just talk to, this is going to be straight talk today, and I don't want to add pressure to anybody here today. I know we live in a world, and by the way, I take, my generation should take responsibility. If you're under 40, maybe if you're under 50, you live in a world where basically the idea is you should try it out first. You should live together first. And then if you find out you're compatible, then you should commit. But you know what's wrong with that now, because we saw a few moments ago, it goes from value to security to intimacy. And what happens in living together, we try to go directly from value all the way to physical fulfillment. And then if we happen to bounce back to security, then maybe we'll make it work. But can I just say this to you? You know, and again, I'm so sorry for what my generation did to you. But if that's where you are and you value each other, why not get under the umbrella of God's protection and just say, well, you know, we're, we're going to do this right. We're, we're going to get married. 
People tell me every once in a while, we're going to wait till we can afford it. Guys, a marriage license is real inexpensive. Really. You know, it's so much better to be under the umbrella of God's, God's blessing and just get that order right. Isn't it great that God gives us a chance to go back and do it right? Just If you value each other and you have gone to physical intimacy, lock in security and say, we're going to lock in the security with each other, and because of that, we're going to build intimacy. And I'm, I'm just leaving that for you to think about and pray about, okay? All right, here we go. Somebody could say, Mark, you're telling me that to uncomplicate sex, I need to be married. But Mark, that's where my complication starts. I am married, and uh, I've got the relationship, but I got to tell you, it's gotten really complicated, and we get to where we fight about sex all the time, or maybe we just don't even talk about it anymore. Well, God gives us, and this is going to surprise some of you to find out that God talks so explicitly about these things. God's going to give married couples some real good sex coaching, and we're going to look at these two verses real quickly here, and then we'll, we'll finish out the talk. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, the Bible says, The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. One of the problems with marriage is we go into it thinking, Wow, I'm going to be pleased. I mean, I, you know, my, my wife's responsibility is to please me. Or my husband's responsibility is to please me. And yet God is saying, no, no, no. You go into a marriage, the husband is saying, he's going into the bedroom asking, how can I please my wife? And the wife is going in asking, how can I please my husband? Now let's be careful here for a moment. Time out. Because I know how men are. There are going to be men here today who hear that, and they're going to be in the car on the way home, and they're going to say, Mark said, that you're supposed to please me. You're supposed to go into the marriage thinking about how to please me. Here's my list. <laughs> that is not what Mark said, and it's definitely not what God said. God is saying, no, no, no. You don't go into thinking about how can I be pleased. It's how can I please the other person. Now, this is where this talk is going to get really dicey. Because back in the days when I used to counsel, I'd have couples that would come in and they would, they would have issues. And, and a lot of times the guy would say, my wife doesn't understand how much I need sex. And the wife was saying, you know what, he, he just expects me to care about him and he never shows love or affection or anything to me. He just expects me to turn on a dime. So I, I'd have this couple in my office and they're talking about the issues that they were having. And I will tell you this, the one thing that was apparent to me is what they were not doing most couples will not do the most important thing necessary for a great sexual relationship. And it's our pride that stops us. You ready for this? This is probably the most controversial thing I'll say all day to husband and wives. You need to dialogue. You need to talk to each other. Because here's the thing. And there's not a man alive who knows how a woman thinks. And there's not a woman alive who knows how a man thinks. So how are we going to know, I mean, how, how, how can we know, husbands, how to please our wives if we don't dialogue with them? Wives, how, how is your husband ever going to know how to please you if you don't dialogue? That's homework if you're married. That's homework for you this week. You have to do three things to dialogue. Most people won't do the first one because it, 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 it messes with our pride. The first one is ask. Ask. If you want to please your spouse, ask. Number two, the second thing that you need to do, and especially men, you with me? Listen. Listen. And men, when you listen to your wife, don't listen through the filter of what you want to happen. 
listen. And thirdly, especially ladies, answer. Because a lot of times what will happen at this point, and I've heard this so many times, uh, it's just not that important. No, what that is, let me translate that, is in my pride, I don't want to dialogue about this. I'm uncomfortable, I'm awkward. You see what I'm saying? This is controversial because, but who teaches us this? Because one more time, the Bible says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Well, how are we going to know if we don't talk and answer and listen to each other? Let me give you another one. Um, Some of you are going to be surprised to find this is in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, the Bible says, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time, limited time, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you. Isn't that interesting? This is God talking about frequency. Now, I know what was going on in the church in Corinth. I can read between the lines. First of all, you've got to realize all the songs I'm, you know, I grew up listening to were in the 70s. So, but I, I hear this guy who's like singing, tonight's the night. <laughs> and his wife is saying, not tonight. Well, why not? I'm praying. You're praying. Yeah, I'm praying. I'm praying. Not tonight. What about tomorrow night? I'm going to be praying then too. What about next week? It's a long prayer. <laughs> I mean, let me read it one more time. So you know I'm not playing with you. I mean, it, it, Paul says, look, don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain, both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely prayer. Afterward, you should come together again. Then think about this is God saying, cut the prayer short. Some of y'all didn't know this in the Bible. You go rush out to the bookstore, buy a Bible as soon as this is over today. And God is just saying, look, this is an important part of your life. And you wouldn't deprive somebody you love of air or water or food. And so God is saying, this is really important. I have five minutes left. And I want to go to a place that is really so important in our culture today. Here's the thing. Every marriage is going to go through tough patches. Yours, mine. The problem in our culture today is that we're so, so-called sexually free, and it's not freedom. Actually, we get into bondage. But we're in a culture today that just is almost like, almost like has one foot in trouble. And you know the thing of it is, if you're going through a tough patch in your marriage, you know, it's like, well, you know what? He understands me, and, and there's nothing between us. You know, we're just going to Starbucks, and and he talks about his marriage, and I talk about my marriage, and he listens to me, and he understands me, and there's there's nothing wrong. You know, and just we we work together, we 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 share an office together, and and she's married, and I'm married, and man, my wife just doesn't understand me, and we fight all the time and everything, and but you know, when we talk together, we just laugh all the time, and you know, no no anything by it. I mean, it's nothing nothing bad's going to happen. I mean, she's just a friend. Oh, Lord, how many tombstones could we put that on? See, I think a lot of times we play with fire and we pretend we're not. Here's the thing. Nothing complicates sex in marriage like a third person. I don't think I've ever said this until this weekend. 
I don't counsel anymore, as I said. But back in the days when I did counsel, I counseled a lot of couples, hundreds of couples. I want to tell you something that counselors keep in their hip pocket. I've had people come into my office like they hate each other. It's like, you know, Mark, she's crazy. I mean, she's crazy. And I can't live with her another day. I don't know what, was, what I was thinking when I was, or Mark, I'm just sorry. You know what? My mother tried to tell me about him, and I wouldn't listen to me. He's a jerk. I don't know. I got out of God's will when I married him. And we just can't live together. And I've seen people say the most hateful things to each other. Let me, let me just tell you, as a counselor, what I used to keep in my hip pocket. I always want to know one thing. Is somebody else involved? Because what I knew is if somebody else wasn't involved, the cure rate was up in the high 90s. If, if one or both people were willing to work on it. That's just a fact. If nobody else was involved, I mean, they could say the most hateful things in the world, but the cure rate was really, really high. It's like cutting out a cancer before it spreads. But I also knew that if somebody else was involved, that cure rate was going to drop really low. And here's something else I used to think about, too. I, if, because usually if there was somebody else involved, it had gotten out somehow. I always wanted to know, did he come clean about it or did he get caught? Because if he came clean about it or she came clean about it, the cure rate, although it dropped, it wasn't as low as when a person got caught. Then, then it was going to be a real challenge to keep this couple together. So because of that today, I want to talk to you about the importance of making sure that nobody else, if you're married, or even if you're going to be married, that your commitment is such that there's never a third person in that relationship because something goes very wrong. You want to see complication in human sexuality, just have an affair. So I want to read. I've got one minute left, and I'm going to go into overtime. Could I have just a few minutes more, maybe two or three minutes over today? Um, these verses from Proverbs, although very explicit, have helped me since I was a kid and definitely through my marriage, okay? Well, here we go. Proverbs 5.15. Drink water from your own well. You need the Hebrew explanation on that one? In case you do, the Bible says in the next verse, share your love only with your wife. Now, this is a, a father writing to a son. You could just as easily be a woman if you change the genders. Share your love only with your husband, okay? Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Now, the Hebrew metaphor here is, is communicating this idea that having sex with somebody that you have this relationship that we described earlier with value and security and intimacy, having sex with that person in your life is like drinking water out of a pure crystal spring. My uncle, when I was a kid, lived in the foothills of Colorado, and, and there was a pipe that flowed through his, that, that came, was in his property, and it brought water, snow melt from the mountains that had run across acres of sand. I still remember drinking that water when I was a kid. It was the cleanest, purest water I've ever had in my life. God is saying, sex with the love of your life, that you're in a committed relationship that'll never be violated, it's like drinking spring water. On the other hand, the Bible says having sex with somebody who's not that person is like drinking water out of the gutter. That's what it says. Now, men, it says, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Or women, let your husband be a, be a fountain of blessing for you. I'm convinced there are two meanings to this. The first meaning is the literal. Obviously, Mary Alice, outside of Jesus saving my soul, Mary Alice marrying me is the greatest blessing of my life and continues to be. 
But I think it's more than that. I think what God is saying, because here's the deal. Some of us are married to people that aren't easy to be married to. But the Bible is saying this. When you're faithful to the person that God has brought into your life, that is your opportunity to be blessed. See, faithfulness in marriage is a microcosm of God's faithfulness to us. So when I'm faithful to Mary Alice, I'm behaving the way God behaves toward me. And God looks upon that as something he can bless. If I, God forbid, lost my mind and ever cheated on Mary Alice, I would walk outside of that umbrella of God's blessing and place myself in a place where God cannot bless me. And I don't know about you, but I can't afford that. Okay, let's roll on. Got to, I'm on overtime. Sorry about that. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. And she is a loving, dear, and graceful daughter. I don't understand in Bible terms why they were so into comparing each other to animals. Um, something clearly has changed over time. I shared with you in Song of Solomon how that Solomon told his wife that her hair looked like a flock of goats. <laughs> Guys, I wouldn't try that one. That one clearly has changed over time. But the next one's right up to 2015. Look at this. Let her breast satisfy you always. Okay, is that blunt enough? And I think God, God knows us so well. He knows that sometimes women can be insecure about, about their appearance. And God is saying, look, guys, keep your eyes on your wife. You determine electively that she, her anatomy is going to please you at all times. You say, but Mark, I don't see anything wrong with getting the binoculars out when I go see the chiefs. Watching the cheerleaders. Oh, no? I mean, first of all, how do you know that's real? Here's the deal. And guys, this is one of the greatest teachings I can ever give you. You decide if your wife is going to be the source of your attraction or not. That's an elective thing. If you're looking at porn, you're not, this ain't going to work for you. If your eyes are on other women... It's not going to work for you. It's an elective decision to say, my wife is going to please me at all times. Okay? Here we go. May you always be captivated by her love. That means intoxicated is interesting. First miracle Jesus ever performed was turning water into wine at a wedding. And the Bible says, may you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breast of a promiscuous woman? This and I'm through. This is why I bring a really difficult talk an explicit talk at times on a day like today. We live in an age today that says sex is not important. God is a God of love. He's Uncle Sugar in the sky, and he's okay with anything. Let's let God speak into that craziness. For the Lord sees clearly what a man slash woman does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. There are ropes that catch and hold him. Guys, God takes sex very seriously. And you and I should too. It's a big thing. God intends for it to be one of the greatest sources of joy and pleasure in our lives. He just wants us to do it his way. He's the designer. Thank you for your kindness and your patience to listen to this talk. Thank you. Very much.